Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, we're in the tail end of our Grand Round season. We have one more next week. And uh, before I introduce uh, our speaker for today, Dr. Schramm, I, I want to remind you that next week we have uh, Dr. Albert Coe. Uh, Dr. Coe is, uh, is in the Governor's uh, uh, Committee for, to Reopening Connecticut, and he's going to provide information about uh, the infectious disease aspects of uh, and, and, and the public health aspects of reopening Connecticut. So, so tune in for questions that you may have for him. Uh, he is at the at the cutting edge in, in terms of you know the reasoning of why we do certain things, and you can certainly ask him whether you agree or disagree with the things that are being done. So far, I think things have been done really well in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we are moving forward with uh, this pandemic. We're in the tail end of our curve. Uh, things are looking good, but obviously we have to be very mindful of what will happen uh, now that the state is reopening and reopening more widely so that we don't follow the, the missteps of the, of the southern states in, in the United States, which are having a tremendous resurgence. So hang in there. You have done a really great job, uh, and hopefully we've maintained you informed through this process um, as we have moved forward. We have, again, on Friday, the, 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 the Ask the Ex Experts uh, session uh, that is headed by John Shriver. Uh, we're going to talk about school health this time, and so, so tune in for that. It's going to be very, very important. And we'll continue that session all the way through the end of July. We'll probably take a, a, a break in August just to give every, everyone a chance to take a breather and then come back and forth uh, in June. Although, you know, we may have a few sessions in August. Uh, I'll be away for a couple of weeks, so I may, I may not be doing those. Today we have uh, the, 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 uh, just an amazing individual who's going to give um, his last lecture as a chair of, of the division. Um, Craig, and if you look at his title, which is 40 Years of Asthma, What I Have Learned and What I Still Don't Know, uh, again, he's going to give us a perspective of his, of his career uh, in this area. And I've known Craig for, for quite a long time. And uh, let me just review a couple of things about his, his career. Uh, he was a major in chemistry um, a long time ago, 1976. Um, I think I was in, uh, uh, we were celebrating uh, the, you know, the bicentennial in Washington, D.C. at that time, a long time ago. I was, uh, I was a kid in, I think, middle school, correct, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then uh, he went to the University of Chicago for medical school, finishing in 1980, uh, then moved to Colorado for quite a long time. Uh, he was there as an intern, a resident, and a chief resident from all the way through uh, uh, 1984, and then he stayed there. He liked Colorado. I guess if you're doing pulmonary, you like the, you know, the mile high air, a little more hypoxic than most of us. And uh, and he that's where he did his fellowship in pulmonology and finished in 1997. He came back east uh, to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where he was uh, from there from 1987 to 1994. And then he was recruited here to uh, the University of Connecticut, uh, uh, directly to the medical school, uh, where he has remained uh, uh, as, a, as a member of, of our faculty, uh, and in fact, the chief tenure in 1997, which he has retained throughout this process. Uh, uh, with, with the new opening of Connecticut Children's, most people now have come directly to Connecticut Children's as opposed to the University of Craig Estate. He's one of the legacy members of the Department of Pediatrics uh, it, that has remained um, as a faculty member uh, in, tenure, in the tenure track uh, in, uh, uh, at the Yucca School of Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics. He's had multiple roles uh, since that time and has been the chief of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology since 2001. But also, uh, what you need to know, he's also the medical director of the respiratory therapy department, the pulmonary lab, and the sleep lab. Um, and if that wasn't enough, then in 2016, he became the fellowship director as well. So, so if you add all his FTEs, I don't know how he's done it. I mean, he's been 
very, very busy. Uh, and uh, despite being so busy with all those things, uh, he's been able to publish over 100 papers and, uh, in peer review literature, amazing quality, book chapters, uh, just incredible productivity. He's, he's lecture all over the country. Uh, I, you know, there, if you look at his curriculum, I mean, hundreds of lectures, hundreds of teaching venues, uh, really sharing his expertise, and he's going to do that uh, for us today. Uh, in addition, he has been NIH funded. He's had a, a lab at the University of Connecticut where he's focused on, on asthma and the immunology of asthma. Uh, partnering with the Department of Immunology in many, many ways, um, and also with Mary Beth Bruder, uh, working in the community uh, with uh, the work that she does. Uh, so he really has been uh, an incredible colleague, friend, mentor, uh, who has dedicated his life to uh, pulmonology, to the Department of Pediatrics, to the children he serves, um, and he does it with kindness. Uh, you will always, there's nothing different than kindness. I've never seen anything different when, from, from Dr. Schramm that is, uh, that is not that specific uh, title. And, and so with that, I, I want to, uh, Craig, um, and uh, we have to remain socially distant in this, in this process, but maybe you can get a little closer. Um, and I'll put my mask as soon as I, I mean, that's probably, that's good, that's probably right there, I think that's six feet. Yeah, but, um, yeah there's a line there that we put in for you. I don't think we can see you there, but we have uh, a plaque for you. And, and then when, when COVID is over or close to over, we'll be able to do, you know, something where people can join us uh, in, in real life. Uh, and, um, and then we can toast and celebrate your life accomplishments in the way that, that you, you should, you're due, because you've done tremendous work for us. And uh, this uh, here says to Craig Schramm, uh, thank you for your years of service and tireless dedication as a division head, a member of the Department of Pediatrics. And uh, the quote here is, leadership is lifting a person's vision to high heights, the raising of a person's performance to a higher standard, the building of a personality beyond its normal limitations. Um, and again, I want to thank you. This is a little token of appreciation for you. The good news for us is that, that Craig will continue to work in the division of pulmonary medicine. Uh, he's going to pursue uh, one of the things that he loves, which is the sleep medicine science and lab, and, uh, but also then take time to do other things, which will, I'm sure, enrich your, your life. Uh, and I'm sure he'll continue writing, will continue to be an academician, will continue teaching, because that's what, that's what makes him great. And, and I don't think you can, you can stop doing those things that you, you enjoy so much. So um, again, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to take this with me so that we can clean it with proper Purell. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, I'm going to ask you to come up and share with us what you have learned uh, for the past 40 years in, uh, in, the, in the topic of, of asthma. So, Dr. Schramm. Thank you, Juan. That was, that was very kind of you. It's a um, bittersweet day here. Uh, I have a week left to go in this, in this career. And so we're going to talk about the last 40 years, some of the things I've been doing. Uh, this started as uh, 40 years of pediatric pulmonology, but I realized that that was going to be about a 10-hour uh, lecture. So uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to tune in, and we can maybe make it a serial. You know, you can tune in to once a week for another chapter of, of pediatric pulmonology. But today we're going to talk about asthma and uh, mostly what, uh, what we've learned, what I've learned, what we've learned over the years, how asthma has changed, and where maybe I think we're going. Um, I have no, nothing to disclose in terms of conflicts of interest. I will be discussing use of some off-label products um, and investigative products, and you'll know that because the FDA badge is going to appear on those slides when those, when those come up. 
So our, um, our objectives today are to understand, look at the uh, advances of asthma in terms of how, what we know about asthma pathogenesis and how these advances have directed our current therapy. We're going to talk about the rationale for SMART therapy and create a SMART asthma care plan and identify some contemporary unknowns related to asthma and its future therapies. So I had to pull this out of my uh, old slides. I remember I gave a, a resident lecture many years ago, and I gave a slideshow, and I told the residents I needed a slide projector and a carousel. And there was a brief pause, and the chief resident said, well, what's a carousel? So, okay, so this is a slide that I pulled out of one of those old carousels, uh, patient roster when I was a third-year medical student at University of Chicago in 1978. I, to this day, re vividly recall two children with asthma who were admitted the same evening and who shared a room, a six-year-old female and a four-year-old male. The, the, the female had no history of steroid use. Uh, the male was quote-unquote steroid dependent in that some rash intern had given him corticosteroids at one point during a hospitalization in the past. Both patients had gotten three doses of subcutaneous epinephrine and had been loaded with IV aminophilin in the emergency department because that was the protocol for admitting someone with asthma in those days. And AS, our person who had never had steroids before, we treated with isoproteranol NEBS, alternating with sub-Q epinephrine every hour, all night long, and got her through the night. The uh, SP, our steroid-dependent patient, because he had gotten steroids before, we gave steroids to again. And so he got IV hydrocortisone drip, uh, which is what we did, isoprel, alternating with alupent metaproteranol every two hours. Both made it through the night. Um, the steroid-treated patient made it through a little easier, didn't need a bunch of sub-Q injections. And the thought was at the time that we were using steroids to potentiate airway beta-adrenergic function because the paradigm of asthma in the 60s and 70s was really focused on bronchospasm, and that was that it was a airway smooth muscle disease. And in the 1960s, epinephrine became available both by in, an inhaler as well as a sub-Q route for relief of bronchospasm. And then theophylline came into vogue in the 1970s to prevent bronchospasm. Uh, inhaled beta agonists started to be used then as well. And the, for the first several asthma symposia really defined asthma as a disorder of of, of reversible airways obstruction, airways hyperreactivity, bronchial obstruction, again, focused on the airway smooth muscle component. Well, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, it was recognized that most asthmatic patients had what was termed early and late phase asthma, in that if you took an allergic individual and had them inhale an allergen that they were allergic to, you could induce an immediate fall in their FEV1 uh, in terms of reflecting bronchospasm. That typically resolved on its own in a couple of hours, but then in about 
two-thirds, 75% of individuals, it was followed by a late-phase response without continued allergen exposure, just a spontaneous late-phase response that started somewhere four to six hours after the exposure and was um, typically more severe and more prolonged in its effect. Well, if you pretreated with a beta agonist, you could block that early response because you were preventing the bronchoconstriction from occurring. But the beta agonists that we had at the time uh, only lasted about three or four hours. And so by the time the late phase response was occurring, the beta agonist had worn off and there was no effect on the late phase response. Of interest, if you, if you gave the patient corticosteroids, there was no effect on the early response because bronchospasm still occurred and steroids weren't affecting the bronchospasm, but the late phase response was prevented. Then it was discovered a substance called chromalin, uh, which was a mast cell stabilizer, and pretreatment with chromalin could block both the early and late phase response. And as we continue to work through this process, uh, it was felt that the early response was due to the release of preformed bronchoconstricting mediators, such as uh, bradykinins and prostaglandins and some of the leukotrienes, whereas the late phase response was due to early release of pro-inflammatory cytokines that then brought in inflammatory cells, caused the inflammation that engendered the late phase response. So chromalin was a, a real breakthrough in the 1980s. I remember in Denver, we used to send patients up to Canada to get it because it wasn't available yet here in this country. And uh, it, was, it was quite exciting. Uh, the problem with chromalin is it really needed to be dosed four times a day for it to be effective. And that became difficult from a patient adherence standpoint. In the next decade, we identified that some of those early mediators, something that was initially referred to as the slow-reacting substances of anaphylaxis, which then caused the late-phase response, were indeed some of the uh, cysteoleukotrienes, and that then opened up a whole new avenue of therapy in terms of anti-leukotriene therapy. And there was increasing appreciation that there is a great deal of inflammation around airways in patients with asthma, even in the absence of an acute asthma attack, that there was chronic airways inflammation that waxed and waned in severity, but was always there. And so the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program here in the US uh, convened for the first time and published uh, uh, their recommendations in 1991. And it was really the first time in the US that the expert panel emphasized the role of inflammation in the pathogenesis of asthma. And that was supported in the second EPP report uh, in 1997 that stated that asthma resulted from a complex interaction between inflammatory cells, mediators, and pathways that were resident in the airways. At the same time, this rather unassuming article was published in the British Medical Journal. It's a, it's a one-page article from uh, David Strachan, who was a British epidemiologist, and it starts like this. This is sort of what I tell residents when you're designing a clinical trial. It should be sort of something like this, where 
Um, I studied the epidemiology of hay fever in a sample of 17,414 British children who I followed to the age of 23 years. This is a good, this is a good clinical study. Um, and uh, Strachan uh, it, it looked at three outcomes. He looked at eczema at one year of age, hay fever at 11 years of age, and hay fever at 23 years of age, and found, I think to his surprise, that the more older siblings you had, the less likely you were to, be a, to become atopic, the less likely you were to have asthma at a year, and the less likely you were to have hay fever at 11 or 23 years of age. He concluded that these observations did not support suggestions that viral infections were important precipitants of atopy, but they could be explained if allergic disease was prevented by infection in early childhood. The more exposures you have to older siblings, the more probable infections you're going to have. Uh, and that this uh, exposure to this unhygienic contact with older siblings then uh, somehow protected you against the development of asthma. And this was the birth of the hygiene hypothesis for patients with asthma. At the same time, Ron Kaufman published a landmark article in the Annual Review of Immunology in 1989 that described the dichotomy of helper CD4 T cells. Helper T cells are cells that direct B cell responses and that direct other inflammatory responses throughout the body. And they are polarized into two types that are mutually inhibitory. Th1 cells produce cytokines like interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, and IL-2 that are mainly antiviral, anti-infectious cytokines and cells, whereas Th2 cells produce the cytokines IL-4, IL-5, uh, IL-6, IL-13 that are principally designed to fight parasitic infections, but in the absence of those are what engender allergic responses. And the Th1 and Th2 cells, again, are mutually inhibitory of each other. So the hygiene hypothesis stated that exposure to viruses, to infectious agents, to uh, other infectious byproducts like uh, lipotoxin and things can increase the um, proportion of Th1 cells. So large families, daycare attendance, which is now the surrogate of large families, um, and uh, living on a farm all enhance your Th1 response and tend to downregulate your Th2 response and so have been shown in many, many epidemiologic studies to be protective against the development of asthma. There's a fantastic study called the German Reunification Study that came out in the 90s that looked at the incidence of, of asthma in sort of mid-school-aged children in East Germany versus West Germany, a relatively homogeneous, genetically homogeneous population but with very different types of upbringing in, uh, uh, related to the, the culture at the time. So uh, West Germany, very Americanized, small families, 
um, not, uh, uh, not a lot of daycare, whereas East Germany uh, sort of institutionalized daycare from an early age, um, larger families, uh, much more air pollution in East Germany. And not surprising, in infants, infants in East Germany had much more uh, bronchitis, bronchiolitis, respiratory illnesses than those children in West Germany had. But when you looked at the incidence of asthma later on in childhood, it was two or three times higher in West German children than in East German children. So this was a hygiene hypothesis. And again, it was felt that in the, uh, with a positive Th1 cells, Th2 cells predominate, they produce interleukin-5, which is a eosinophil um, attractant and maturing factor, IL-4, which converts uh, B cells to IgE-producing B cells, and IL-13, which has direct effects on airway smooth muscle, all of which conspire to generate the airway disease that we know as, as asthma. This is a friend of mine who uh, works, uh, is, is the, uh, is like a forester here in, in one of the state parks in Connecticut. And he had asthma all his life, and about uh, 10, 15 years ago, developed Lyme disease. Well, he was excited because when he had Lyme disease, his asthma was cured. And why was that? Well, probably because if we had investigated him, he had a much higher Th1 response in response to his, his Lyme disease. So, of course, he was treated with penicillin, and six months later, his Lyme disease was cured. Unfortunately, his asthma came back. It's not, not to say that we should all go out and get chronic Lyme disease to uh, treat our asthma, but uh, illustrates in an individual this balance between Th1 and Th2 cells. So in the 1990s, as we now really appreciated the inflammatory component of asthma, we uh, got on board with inhaled corticosteroids and leukotriene modifiers to try to prevent and relieve that airway's inflammation. In the 90s, too, we were in the midst of the asthma epidemic that I think you're all familiar with. If you look at the uh, U.S. prevalence of asthma through my career, it's uh, doubled or almost tripled since 1980 to the uh, late um, 2000s here. And the reasons for this still are not well known, and we might speculate on them in a little bit. But if you look also, the annual uh, prevalence of Crohn's disease and type 1 diabetes have also increased during this period. So Th2-mediated disease is on the rise with asthma, but Th1-mediated diseases are also on the rise with uh, these other conditions. So it's almost like there was something that was inhibitory for either Th1 or Th2 cells that is missing or defective in the current state. And then perhaps depending on your genetics or how your body is wired, in the absence of that regulatory uh, stimulus, you then develop either unchecked Th1 or Th2 responses and go on to have asthma or those other disorders. What that was was, not unknown, was completely unknown in the 90s. 
And we were one of the groups that started to look at uh, allergic asthma. And uh, we were interested in more of a chronic asthma model. And I, I, I worked with uh, Roger Thrall on these studies. And Roger was an old scar guy. He had done a lot of work with bleomycin-induced lung injury. And we know, at least in adults, that patients with chronic asthma develop airway scarring. They get subepithelial fibrosis. And we wanted to explore the mechanisms of that somewhat. So we, we devised this a chronic asthma model where we took mice, made them allergic to ovalbumin by sensitizing them with ovalbumin and, and uh, adjuvant, and then had them inhale ovalbumin five days a week for seven to 10 days and then all the way up to um, six weeks to look at both uh, the early phase and the late phase of this. And so as anticipated, if you sensitize the mice, they develop IgE responses and cutaneous late phase responses, basically positive skin tests to ovalbumin. They don't have any lung inflammation or mucus or airways hyperreactivity because they haven't had any lung exposure yet to the ovalbumin. But when you aerosolize it and they have the lung exposure, they then develop lung inflammation, predominantly eosinophilic, mucus hypersecretion in the airways, and airways hyperreactivity. Yes, we measure lung function in mice. And you can show that they have increased responsiveness to, to methacholine. So they have all the hallmarks of uh, human asthma. We expected this to continue over the next uh, five weeks and for us to then start seeing some scar formation in the airways. But to our surprise, although the mice stayed allergic to the ovalbumin in terms of their skin responses and IgE responses, their lung inflammation and mucus and airways hyperreactivity largely resolved despite ongoing ovalbumin exposure. So we turned this local inhalational tolerance, or LIT, and uh, this is one of those sort of serendipitous research findings that you didn't anticipate at all but then end up building your career on because we studied this for about the next 15 years about how mice are able to do this. Why can mice turn off their asthma when people can't? And we thought if we could figure that out, maybe we could come up with a more directed way to treat patients with asthma. And we found that uh, there were regulatory T cells, a specific type of regulatory T cell called the C25 FOXP3 regulatory T cell in bronchoalveolar lavage and hyalur lymph nodes during that tolerant phase, the LIT phase, in, in mice with asthma. And that transfer of these cells before allergen challenge decreased the inflammation in airways hyperreactivity and were able to protect the mice from the development of asthma. Around the same time, it was found in humans that, that uh, children with asthma have fewer of these regulatory T cells in their uh, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and lower levels of FOXP3 mRNA. And so there seems to be a deficit of regulatory T cells that's associated with asthma that the mice were able to re-engender uh, that were protective even in the early phase for asthma in those mice uh, and that somehow in children with asthma are not being produced. 
these are a type of regulatory T cell that get generated in the periphery by various methods of stimulation. They're converted from regular uh, sort of naive CD4 cells. So some of those CD4 cells become Th1 cells, some become Th2 cells, but others become regulatory T cells. And how that occurred was, was unknown. So the expert panel report three came out in 2007, confirmed the important role of inflammation in asthma, and as you are all well aware, came up with a stepwise approach to pharmacologic therapy that, that looked at asthma severity judged by both um, the uh, control and the risk for future exacerbations, and then uh, associated the severity with a way of titrating or adjusting therapy. And so in the 2000s, the asthma paradigm was really that of controller titration to match the amount of controller to the severity of your asthma. And we developed action plans and stepwise approaches to asthma that you're all familiar with. You've all seen these sort of tables from the uh, uh, National uh, Asthma Guideline Report that looks at asthma severity, this sort of table that says there's step one, two, three, four, five, and six steps for the, the treatment of asthma. And so we currently base our, our therapy um, accordingly. Later and now in this last decade, we've gone a step further and looked at more direct immune modulation of asthma with monoclonal antibodies. So if I go back to this uh, immune dysregulation schematic and we talk about the interleukins 5, 4, 13, and IgE is all contributing to asthma, we now have monoclonal antibodies that can be administered to uh, block each of those pathways and then uh, attenuate the asthma responses in responsive individuals. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to um, caution that uh, with that caveat that not everybody responds to these antibodies even though you think they should. Why that is we don't know and how we really pick one versus another we'll talk about in a, in a couple more slides. But uh, there also are not any studies really that look at the effectiveness of one uh, type of blockade versus another. The, the uh, amolizumab anti-IgE is our Zolaire, which we've had around now for uh, some time. The IL-5, the anti-IL-5 antibodies are uh, Nucala and Facenra that have been available also for a while. And the, there's an anti-IL-4, IL-13 antibody, uh, Dupilumab, that is uh, uh, actually used more for eczema, but has had some uh, good reports of effectiveness in patients with, with asthma as well. So in uh, 2008, I, I published what I like to call my cold fusion article. Uh, I call it that because it took three years to publish this. And we, when we first submitted it as a uh, rapid publication in uh, 2005, no one believed it. So we found that there was a regulatory B cell uh, 
in our murine model of asthma that if you transferred hyaluronic lymph node B cells from LIT mice, you could attenuate the allergic airways disease following ovalbumin aerosol exposure in the recipient animals. We had previously shown that with the T cells and found that they were the T regulatory cells that were doing it, but we found that we could do it with B cells as well. And that this transfer resulted in accumulation of FOXP3 regulatory T cells in the BAL and hyaluronic lymph node, even in that early phase on the AAD phase of the recipient animals, but not in the, in the spleen. And lastly, we showed that these hyaluronic lymph node B cells could induce FOXP3 regulat regulatory T cell development from naive T cells in vitro through a TGF-dependent process. Well, nobody believed this because at the time, the whole uh, model of B cells was that they were, uh, they were the sort of recipient cells. The T, T cells directed B cells to do what B cells needed to do. And there, there were only actually seven articles at the time that we um, proposed this that looked at, that, that thought that there was a, maybe a regulatory role for B cells in certain situations. And what, would, what happened is we got rejected the first time and they said, well, if you only do experiment X, you'll see that it doesn't work and you're wrong. Well, we did experiment X and it worked and we were right. And then we submitted it again and they say, well, if you do experiment Y, you'll see that it doesn't work and you're wrong. And we did that and it still worked and we were still right. So we went from a, a one figure paper to like an eight, nine figure paper because of all these added experiments that people wanted us to do. And it kept, it kept they all kept supporting our, our original um, proposal. And so by the time it actually got published, there were 21 other papers about regulatory B cells. And now there's a little over a thousand uh, articles on regulatory B cells, still not the 20, 22, 25,000 about regulatory T cells. But it's well appreciated now that there, is, there are regulatory B cells. Our B cells that we, gener that we produce generate a TGF beta. Um, there is a whole other category of regulatory B cells called B10 cells that produce IL-10, which is another inhibitory interleukin um, cytokine. And uh, both of these B cells can induce the formation of regulatory T cells that can then go on and inhibit these inflammatory responses. And in our model, chronic antigen stimulation and stimulation of the B cell co-stimulatory molecule CD19 could induce the Breg formation in vitro. So our, our model, if you will, is that in mice anyway, that chronic exposure of the antigen in the airways were is able to induce regulatory B cell formation in the airway uh, tissue as well as hyaluronic lymph nodes, uh, mediastinal lymph nodes. These regulatory B cells in turn induce regulatory T cells that then inhibit the, the Th2 response. Much, much more to do if anybody wants to take on this project. I'm happy to sit with you and say where we should go next with it. Uh, and so, where we are now is that there's, you know, there's a host of, of things, uh, of factors, of environmental factors that are associated with asthma. We've talked about allergens, but certainly irritants are involved as well. Pollutants, air pollution, and the like is in, uh, involved with asthma. Diet and obesity, the um, you know, Mediterranean diet is protective against asthma like it is about just about everything else. 
uh, it's amazing that anybody ever dies in the Mediterranean, but um, the, the uh, diet is, is, is protective. There are a couple of articles that I have that I, that I can't show you that shows that eating an apple a day is protective against asthma, um, and, and stress can cause asthma. How does this happen? Well, there are different pathways for everything. There's the immune deviation from allergens that we spoke about. Uh, pollutants mostly are related to oxidant inflammation in the airways. The uh, irritants, uh, cigarette smoke, dust and the like, probably trigger some epigenetic factors that cause asthma. And when you look at that asthma explosion, the asthma epidemic, and to say there's a threefold increase in asthma over the last uh, 40 years, you know, you can't explain that by any genetic drift or genetic factors. It has to be related to something here in this uh, schema that I'm showing you here. And then diet and obesity, possibly related to uh, inflammatory compounds induced by adipose tissue, but also by a microbiome that can affect asthma. The, the epigenetics is a fascinating, um, a fascinating field and, and concept, and there's, it's one that I've given a couple other talks, and I, I wish I had time to really explore that with you all today. But one other great, great article that, that came out about 15 years ago showed that, you know, if your mother smoked when she was pregnant with you, you have an increased risk of having asthma. Okay, no great surprise, right? You have about a, a 200, 300% increased chance of having asthma. And some of that's related to uh, maybe actually direct effects on your lungs, uh, morphological effects from the maternal smoking, but some thought to be possibly epigenetic factors as well. But the really, really neat thing that this article showed was that if your mother's mother smoked when she was pregnant with your mother and your mother never smoked at all in her life, you still had an increased risk of having asthma, about a 50% increased risk of having asthma. So something happened to your mother that then got passed on down to you. And this is uh, probably epigenetic modifications of some um, pro-inflammatory uh, genes that can get passed on that way. So all of these play a role in asthma. Uh, the microbiome, my last research paper, actually looked at the microbiome in mice, and we showed that early life antibiotics attenuated regulatory T cell generation in adult mice long after they had been exposed to the antibiotics, and that this was related to changes in their uh, microbiome that were induced by the, by the antibiotics. So where we're sort of currently at, uh, this, this is almost a 20-year-old slide, but it still reflects where we're at, is that there are asthma and allergy phenotypes, and that all of these sort of things, the allergens and air pollution, uh, obesity, infections, and like, all factor in to that development of asthma, and that there are also probably maternal and fetal genes, as well as the in utero, in, intrauterine environment that affect your risk for, for asthma development. But we're still really focused on asthma phenotypes rather than asthma genotypes. And the reason for that is here's a, a schematic of the genes that are involved with, uh, with asthma. And I'll, I'll leave this up for a minute for you guys to memorize it. Uh, the, uh, the red genes are the, 
the sort of major players and all the other ones, and these are all the different pathways and how all the genes can interact. And um, it, it's clearly a, a multifactorial process. There are over 100 genes that have been associated with asthma, and they can be broken down into genes that affect various things, uh, the degree of inflammation the body has, mucus hypersecretion, airway remodeling and scarring that we talked about, bronchial smooth muscle hyperreactivity, host defense, and the like. And these are the commonest, the common top 20 or so genes that have been associated in uh, large trials with the development of asthma. So finally, 20 minutes, in, uh, 20 minutes left to go. <laughs> we are now into the, into the 2020s, and we are looking at individualized therapy. And as I said, we've finally gotten smart. SMART stands for Single Maintenance and Reliever Therapy. It doesn't stand for that I'm going to be retiring next Tuesday. Um, and it has, um, the original studies of, of SMART really actually came out almost 20 years ago now. And it's been the therapy of choice in Europe in the GINA guidelines, Global Initiative for Asthma guidelines, since 2006. And the, uh, by SMART, what you do is you use a single medication, an inhaled corticosteroid formoterol uh, preparation for both maintenance and relief therapy. Recall that formoterol is a long-acting beta agonist that has a rapid onset of, in, of, of uh, initiation. So it works as fast as albuterol does in terms of providing relief for bronchospasm. So most of the studies have used budesonide formoterol, which you know is, is uh, Symbacort, and some people call this Symbacort maintenance and reliever therapy. Others have used beclomethasone formoterol, which is a preparation available in Europe that we, we don't have in this country. But for moderate to severe asthmatics, the um, patient takes one or two puffs one to two times a day as maintenance and then takes that same medication as needed for relief of symptoms up to um, eight puffs per day in the six to 12 year old range or 10 to 12 puffs per day in the over 12 year old patients. For intermittent to mild asthmatics, they may need no daily maintenance therapy, but they would use the same uh, inhaled corticosteroid formoterol preparation for uh, relief during illnesses and even before exercise for exercise-induced bronchospasm prophylaxis. Salmeterol, our other long-acting beta agonist, the one that's, um, that one that's in Advair would not work in this regard because it has a delayed onset, a slow onset of action and so wouldn't provide you with any immediate relief like the formoterol does. So this is what, what smart therapy is, is all about. And it's uh, designed to sort of address this sort of what's called window of opportunity. So if you look at uh, peak expiratory flow rates if, or an asthma score uh, and look at the amount of airways inflammation that's developing, you see that air, as airway st inflammation starts to develop and increase, uh, early on before people get very symptomatic. And so if time zero, if day zero is the really onset of your symptoms, there is a period of three to maybe six days earlier 
that inflammation is going up. And if you, if you start to feel some symptoms, if you start to see changes in peak flow, there's that window of opportunity where by using more uh, of a ICS reliever therapy, instead of just doing albuterol, so normally somebody is sitting around like this, I'm starting to feel a little tight, I start using albuterol, they may or may not activate their full sick plan, they may or may not increase their daily inhaled steroid, which I know has now become a controversial uh, topic, but they're not doing anything to address their inflammation. Whereas with smart therapy, as they need more and more reliever, they're also giving themselves more and more anti-inflammatory therapy to uh, tamp down that inflammatory response. And if you look at uh, meta-analyses of, of several studies, uh, the, the top one, figure two, looks at comparing SMART to, in, in patients over 12 years of age, to the same dose of an inhaled steroid with um, a LABA controller therapy. First and number and figure three, the lower one is using SMART compared to increasing the dose of inhaled corticosteroid during uh, LABA controller therapy. And uh, SMART was associated with about a 35% decrease in severe exacerbations as defined by a, an asthma exacerbation requ requiring corticosteroids, ED visit, or hospitalization if you, as compared to patients who didn't increase their inhaled steroids, and uh, about a 25% uh, decrease in um, severe exacerbations, even compared to patients who did increase their inhaled corticosteroids when they were sick. And again, the thought is that the smart patients were increasing earlier, were perhaps increasing higher, were doing more that they needed to during the uh, during their exacerbation. And so sort of numbers needed to treat um, are somewhere in the 15 to 40 uh, patient range for these different, uh, or, or for this response. There's a recent meta-analysis of nine adolescent studies showing that adolescents do as well, if not better, on SMART uh, therapy than uh, adults do in terms of uh, time to first exacerbation is favored by, by SMART, number of exacerbations in a year, nighttime awakenings as needed inhaler use and FEV1 all favor SMART as compared to traditional therapy in the adolescent population as well. So at the recent uh, European Respiratory Society conference in Madrid, there's a guy named Sebastian Johnston from uh, London gave a talk and said that using a long-acting beta agonist without an inhaled corticosteroid in asthma is clearly unsafe. Those were the old Cerevent days. We don't use that anymore as therapy uh, because it's associated with increased mortality. He went on to say that evidence suggests that overusing short-acting beta agonists without an ICS is also clearly unsafe. I suspect that it kills people. And so, in conclusion, he said that for safety reasons, Short-acting beta agonist albuterol should be banned and replaced with beta agonist ICS combination therapy in the same inhaler so that patients cannot take a beta agonist without at the same time taking a steroid. He did acknowledge this was a controversial idea. So SMART, uh, there are several questions related to SMART. Uh, it is not, of course, FDA approved yet, and so uh, the, the 
expert panel, there's an expert panel for report and preparation that is due out sometime probably in the uh, second half of this year, and they are going to induce smart therapy for use in this country as well. Uh, it will, we'll need to see how that will be implemented, uh, particularly in patients who are currently well controlled on their current regimen. Should we do it? Uh, if we do it, how will it be approved so that we can do it? Uh, will it work with mometazone for Moderol, with Dulera? We don't know. It's never been tested with that. We think it should. Why not? But, uh, but we don't know. If SMART is used in place of albuterol before exercise in a mild asthmatic who's not an ache controller, won't that result in a higher total ICX exposure and maybe side effects? Will SMART be successful in moderate to severe asthma exacerbations that traditionally require a lot of puffs of albuterol, more than just two puffs or four puffs, you know, that require six to eight puffs of albuterol or maybe two and a half to five milligram albuterol nebs? Will it work in those cases? You know, we don't know. And lastly, will SMART be cost-effective? These, um, these inhalers are, are more expensive than albuterol and the other uh, generics, and so, you know, with that number needed to treat, will it be cost-effective for us to do? And, and we don't know. So the 20s, I think, are going are to promote individualized therapy, SMART therapy, uh, sublingual immunotherapy, which is another one that's been available in Europe for a long time. So the only thing now that we have that can actually maybe make your asthma go away is immunotherapy. I can control your asthma with all of these medications and monoclonal antibodies, but it doesn't make your asthma go away. Whereas immunotherapy and some responsive individuals can make it go away. In this country, it's all by injection. In Europe, they've had sublingual immunotherapy for a long time, and we're getting a few available in this country now. There's a grass sublingual immunotherapy that's been approved for a while and is approved, I think, down to age 12. There's a dust mite sublingual immunotherapy now approved in adults. Uh, and I think that will gradually come on board in the next 20 years. And there's going to be increasing appreciation of asthma heterogeneity. So all we've talked about so far in this whole talk has been, has been type 2 asthma. And that, to be honest, has been by far the focus of all investigative work in patients with asthma. But there's a sizable number of asthmatics, mostly adults, maybe up to 30% of adults, but probably somewhere in the 15 maybe percent range of children who have non-type 2 asthma that are mostly, that's mostly neutrophilic and driven by uh, interleukin-17 producing T cells, or what are called Th17 cells. And we have if we look at phenotyping or endotyping, the, the TH2 high asthmatics there on the right, we have a whole bunch of therapies for them, uh, particularly in terms of monoclonal antibodies that are, that are currently available, some other uh, types of anti-inflammatory uh, compounds that are in investigation. But we really don't have very much for neutrophilic asthma or something that's seen in adults called granulocytic asthma. So these patients don't really have any inflammation in their BAL. They don't have eosinophils or they don't have neutrophils. They probably have some direct airway smooth muscle issue harking back to our 60s, 70s paradigm here. And they, the only thing that's really worked well in adults has been bronchial thermoplasty, where you take a bronchoscope with a laser on it and you zap a whole bunch of their airway smooth muscle and, and kill it. 
to prevent uh, bronchospasm. We don't do that in children because of the concern that it might cause some airway scarring and then your airways won't grow and uh, then you'll develop some fixed obstruction down the road. Neutrophilic asthma, azithromycin, has been used more and more in adults. In addition to its anti-infectious properties, the macrolides have various anti-inflammatory effects, uh, principally in downregulating some of the uh, Th1 cytokines and IL-2, uh, IL-8, which are pro general pro-inflammatory cytokines. There's an anti-TH17 monoclonal antibody in development, uh, uh, this brodalumab. And, and theophylline is now coming back into vogue a little bit for these types of patients with asthma, as are actually statins that can be beneficial. So in the next 40 years, or what I still don't know, you know, I have no idea what causes asthma. Nobody does. Uh, can we reestablish tolerance in asthmatics like we can with LIT in mice? I don't know. Uh, maybe what we should do is have all asthmatics inhale the stuff that they're allergic to. So a sort of chronic low-dose antigen inhalation to try to downregulate their airways inflammation. You know, you scoff at that, but who would have thought 20 years ago that we would be feeding peanuts to peanut anaphylactic patients to prevent their development of anaphylaxis? Maybe we can vaccinate patients to induce Tregs or Bregs to control their asthma. And maybe we need to manipulate the microbiome some in, in certain individuals. But really, you know, for all that we've learned and all that we talked about, what, what factors most in terms of uh, asthma uh, uh, control and asthma severity is adherence to therapy and inhaler technique. And, and time and time again, uh, studies have shown that patients poorly adhere to therapy, poorly use their inhalers, despite multiple, multiple reviews. And we need to somehow improve that. We need some technology to have patients remind them to take their therapy. This is a screamer, one of those things from Harry Potter. You know, I need one of those so that if you, don't, if you miss your therapy, it starts screaming at you. Um, maybe more oral therapies to get around the inhaler technique. Uh, I don't know. So we'll end uh, with a, a, a quote from my chief resident when I was an intern. Uh, I have no magic cure to report. Asthma has many etiological aspects and should be treated according to the various causes that bring it about from the uh, treatise of asthma in the 12th century. Uh, I, ha I, I had started making slides to thank people. There are way too many slides in that regard uh, for me to thank all of my mentors and collaborators and the fellows and postdocs that have worked with me and, and the, the, my, the clinical colleagues in the divisions that I've been associated with and all of the residents and medical students that I've had a pleasure to interact with. I just thank you for sharing your, your knowledge, your expertise, your enthusiasm, and your friendship. I, I, I thank you all very much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was a, a fantastic view. I love the, 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 the black slides from the 1970s. I mean, <laughs> so, um, so we have uh, time for, for questions. We have a, a few minutes. And uh, again, just to remind you, if you have a question, please use your Q&A function in, the, uh, uh, in, in your webinar uh, section. And we, we have a couple of questions. This is more of a comment. Actually, it's a question and a comment. 
uh, from Dr. Blummer is that I'm a bit older and remember Theophylline cigarettes to treat asthma. <laughs> yes, those are older. Uh, actually, you know, some of the, uh, if we go back 100 years ago, there were a, a number of different types of cigarettes that were used for treatment of asthma um, that maybe were not so good. <laughs> Can't imagine, right? I mean, so that uh, prescribing the uh, you know the Theophylline cigarette. Right. Um, from uh, from Larry Zemmel, uh, uh, which uh, asthma patients are at risk for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? You know, that's uh, again a question that nobody really knows the answer to. We think that the patients who have poor control are at increased risk. It sort of makes sense that the more uh, chronic inflammation that you have in your airways, the more likely you are to develop some of that scarring and irreversible airflow obstruction, which is a, a characteristic of asthma in adult patients. But very, very likely some of these um, mediating uh, genetic factors play a role in that, and we, we simply don't know. Question from uh, Jess Hollenbach. Uh, how do you predict our families will respond to smart therapy? Will they be accepting or more aversive? Uh, another good question. I think there's going to be a mixed bag. I think some patients are going to say, hey, I'm doing fine on what I'm on. Um, I think it's going to be potentially harder to switch people over than it would be to start somebody anew on the therapy. So somebody who's coming in not well controlled probably I can sell it a little bit better and say that this is a therapy that's, that's relatively new in this country but has been proven to be effective for 15 years in Europe. It just gives you one inhaler that you have to carry around with you. Uh, use it when you need it. You just have to remember once a day, every day, and then increase when you need to use it. You don't have to worry about finding your other medications or having them run out or, or expire. Uh, so I, I think in some ways, that will be uh, well received by patients, but patients who are already used to the sort of action plans and, and uh, well-planned, sick plan stuff, it may be difficult to convert them over. Uh, this is from Melissa Santos. Uh, great talk, thank you. Can you speak a bit, a bit more about the relationship between obesity and asthma? Do you think there's a clear directional relationship? Which comes first, right? The chicken or the egg, right? Is it that you have asthma and so you're not very active and then you get obese? Or is it that you have obesity that then can cause asthma? And probably it's the latter. There, uh, there are a number, again, of sort of pro-inflammatory uh, molecules that are produced in adipose tissue that, is that can be associated with atherosclerotic blood vessel disease, but also can uh, be associated with asthma. The effect, there's a mechanical effect of obesity on your uh, lungs, making your lungs a little smaller, and so your airway's a little smaller, and may uh, then promote the uh, response to uh, smaller degrees of bronchospasm. And lastly, there is, there is, you know, an obese mouse model that you can show have a propensity to asthma. So probably there are factors associated with obesity that uh, directly can engender asthma. Uh, we have, uh, it's nine, but we have, I'm gonna give you three more questions here. The, from uh, uh, Anand Sekharan, uh, should we be using peak flows more in the ED inpatient settings to assess severity and response to therapy? 
we, we, we could. So um, the problem with using peak flows acutely is that, uh, well, first you have to be old enough to be able to do it. So probably, you know, five to eight years of age, and it's not going to work in a, in a younger child. Um, the more dysmic you are, the harder it is to do a really good peak flow maneuver. Uh, the maneuvers are, are prone to, uh, to manipulation, if you will. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, many places do use it in the emergency room and in, the, uh, in an inpatient setting to help follow a response to, to therapy, and it's, it's not unreasonable. Peak flow action plans don't work terribly well in children with asthma. So there are, uh, there was some excitement, oh, maybe 20 years ago about doing peak flows twice a day on patients with asthma to help track your control. And uh, there are a couple studies, one that showed that, you know, people don't do them. Uh, they, they did a study where they said, okay, I want you to write down your peak flow. You're going to do it twice a day. You're going to write this down on this calendar, and it's going to be recorded in your device, and you're going to come back in a month, and you're going to show it to me, and we're going to go through the we're going to go through your calendar. And even with that, uh, a third of the peak flow numbers were completely made up, that they weren't even done, were just written on their calendar, and another third were wrong. They, you know, the peak flow was, uh, was 200 and was written down as 300, even when I said I was going to check what you were doing. And so the thought that you're going to be doing it on your own, I think, is a pie-in-the-sky kind of uh, a goal. And then there was a guy, uh, Mike Silverman, in England that did a nice study that looked at a peak flow-based treatment plan versus a symptom-based treatment plan in children and found that patients on the symptom-based treatment plan uh, started their, their sick plans sooner in the course of an illness and resolved sooner than the, with the peak flow uh, plan. And the, the thought was there that, you know, peak flows generally really largely measure your, your large airways, your biggest flow producing airways, and not your small airways, which is where a lot of your asthma obstruction is. Thanks. It's, it's 9.03, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, there were a couple more questions that we'll send to you directly uh, in comments. And uh, so, so with, to Dr. Cohen uh, and Dr. McGilpin, we'll, we'll get those responses to you later. So, Craig, thank you uh, very much for a wonderful Grand Rounds, an unbelievable career, and uh, the good news is we, we still get to enjoy you, um, uh, you know, hopefully many more years uh, in your new role uh, in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine, focusing on the sleep medicine. Uh, it, it's been a wonderful ride, so thank you, thank you so much. Uh, everyone, take thank care. You. We'll uh, see you uh, on Tuesday or, and, or Friday. Take care. Bye-bye.